having someone who is with you to help you step by step, I think will actually make the journey a lot more enjoyable and, and also learning. You'll, you'll learn a lot more. Are you a health professional wanting to explore all the options life has to offer? Then you've come to the right place. The Balance Medics Handover podcast is all about living outside the box of what we've been told. I'm Isabella, your host, a junior doctor from Australia and trained coach. I'll be interviewing health professionals from all walks of life, artists, authors, non-clinical specialists, and more. These stories show that our choices are endless. Let's take the journey together. This is The Handover. Hello and welcome back to The Handover podcast. This episode, we're going to be speaking all about clinical research. I myself am working in clinical research as an investigator, primarily in vaccine trials, but it's great to have our guest here to get an even better idea of the breadth available in research. Our special guest is Dr. Samantha Loy, a psychiatrist who is also a principal research fellow with special interests in neuropsychiatry and old age psychiatry. I'm really excited to chat with her about her own unique journey in research and hopefully shine more of a light on what's involved. So without further ado, let's hand over to Dr. Samantha Loy. Hi, how are you? Good. Can I just say something, Isabel? Yeah. Um, I know I've got doctor on my profile, but I'm actually an associate professor. Oh. And normally I wouldn't be bothered about that, but I've been told I should you know, be proud of it. So I will say that I'm proud of it. All right. Well, I'll, I'll rephrase that then. Without <laughs> further ado, we'll hand over to Associate Professor Samantha Loy. Thanks very much. <laughs> so could you share more about your journey and how you got to where you are now? Sure. So I've actually been in research for over 10 years now, since 2011. And unlike some of my trainees now who are doing a lot of research as um, registrars, I actually became more interested in research as I finished my fellowship. So a position after I finished my advanced training in old age psychiatry, of which there is actually a research project component, I actually um, had a position become available to me with the University of Melbourne as a lecturer, which is a the sort of lowest rank role in the sort of hierarchy in the university system. And I had some, I had a part-time position as an old age psychiatrist. And so I took on this extra position and that's where I started. And then I ended up getting more interested in the work we were doing at the University of Melbourne and then ended up being encouraged to do a PhD. So finished my PhD, did that in a particular topic, and now I've um, been doing my postdoctoral research, which is where I still am today. That's great for you to share. And I wanted to ask more about what drew you to psychiatry. Yeah, so I guess I've always been interested in, you know, the way people think and mental health and well-being. And during my medical school training, I did a Bachelor of Medical Science, which is in between medical school. So you can take a year off to do a year of research. So I actually did that in the area of psychiatry at Dandenong Hospital um, and happened to be doing some work looking at cannabis use and the development of first episode psychosis. So that was my first foray in learning a bit more about research, but learning a bit more about psychiatry in general. The funny story is that when I then continued into my fourth year of medicine, I actually did very poorly in psychiatry, nearly failed the subject oh. um, and decided I'm not doing anything like that. But then in my final year of medicine in sixth year, I actually had a really enjoyable term, fascinating way to see how people act, how people think, and the way people act under stress. 
and just, you know, personality aspects and brain disorders. And so I became quite interested in psychiatry then and managed to get an intern um, rotation at Geelong Hospital in psychiatry. And then also in my second year of um, training in Darwin Hospital, also a rotation in psychiatry. And then I decided I really want to do psychiatry. That's what I want to do. And I want to learn more about the brain and how I guess people think. That's so interesting. It's like full circle. You started off interested. You had that moment <laughs> where you were like, no, never doing this. And then you came back to it. That's that's right. Um, so I guess it's not, it's, it was probably a relatively smooth journey, but certainly um, it really depends on who you get as your teachers and your lecturers and also the rotations you get. So I think you've had a generally a good and positive and interesting rotation in psychiatry or, or whatever rotation that probably puts you on a bit more of an interesting path I think and I certainly had the experiences and there were good rotations so a lot of support a lot of teaching so that really helped a lot to I guess guide my path into psychiatry. Yeah rotations really it's it's who you're with isn't it on the rotations that really stays with you and makes you think if you like it or not. Oh, oh definitely. Now where did the interest in neuropsychiatry and old age psychiatry come from? So. Um, in terms of the old age psychiatry, so that's a specialty in psychiatry which primarily looks at people who are older than 65 years old. So there's a kind of this weird dichotomy that you become older when you're older than 65, which, you know, we know is not necessarily true, but that's how it's been for, I guess, you know, pensions and things like that. Um, and I actually grew up with no grandparents. My grandparents were all overseas. And so I didn't actually have a lot of experience with older people. And so... When I did my old age psychiatry term, which is one of the compulsory rotations in psychiatry when I was doing that, I actually learned a lot about older people. And I was just very impressed by um, resilience stories and basically the experience that older people have. And in reality, really, I've learned a lot more about life in general from my experience with older people. And that's when I really decided during my old age term that I really wanted to do old age psychiatry. I guess the other interesting thing about old age psychiatry is that there's a lot more interface with medicine as well. So it's not just about depression and anxiety and just the, I guess, the mental illness. Because older people tend to have other comorbidities, you've actually got to take into consideration neurological issues, um, frailty, age-related illnesses, and also um, multiple medications. So all that kind of stuff makes it quite interesting and a lot more diverse for me. Um, and that's why, how I became drawn to old age psychiatry. So that's the old age psychiatry experience. And the other really positive thing was that when I did my rotations, all the old age psychiatrists were incredibly nice and supportive. And I've still yet to meet an, a nasty old age psychiatrist. So that also helps a lot. But the neuropsychiatry is, is quite interesting. It's kind of defined as the interface between the, the brain and the body, the brain and the mind. And it sort of cuts in between neurology and psychiatry so it's it's an interesting field where it covers quite a, a, a broad range of psychiatry so it's not just things like um say depression in multiple sclerosis and parkinson's disease um it's things like parkinson's disease where it's not just movement disorders and neurology but people with parkinson's disease are very commonly have psychiatric disorders it involves things like huntington's disease and other genetic disorders other younger onset dementias metabolic conditions, you know, post-stroke depression. And I guess in some countries, such as the US and the UK, neuropsychiatry also includes things like traumatic brain injury, acquired brain injury, intellectual disability, and the psychiatric manifestations which are associated with those. And also the sort of 
things like conditions like functional neurological disorders. It all comes under the umbrella of neuropsychiatry. So it's really broad. And so again, the relationship between general medicine, neurology and psychiatry is an important facet of neuropsychiatry, which is another reason why I really enjoy working in the area. It's it's really just really interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like you have a very broad, um, diverse approach to psychiatry with the old age psychiatry and the neuropsychiatry together. Um, you're also involved in research and clinical research. So can you describe your involvement in that more? Yeah. So I guess in terms of clinical research, my clinical experience helps to drive the kind of things I'm interested in seeking in my research. And whilst I guess on a clinical level, being a clinician is important because in terms of the people you treat individually, whereas a research perspective can, I guess, provide more positive benefits for people as a whole. So it's look, thinking at the group level rather than the individual, which is why I quite like the combination of both. So my research is very clinically focused. It's very clinically and what they call clinical translation. So a lot of some of my colleagues do research where they're looking at, um, you know, biomarkers and neuroanatomy, whereas my research in particular is very much looking at um, where I'm working in neuropsychiatry. So currently in my job at the Royal Melbourne Hospital as a neuropsychiatrist, I see many people with young onset dementia. So that's my field of interest and that's my where my postdoctoral research has been focused on. And I've been exploring things like epidemiology and prevalence, the types of um, young onset dementias that we're seeing how they present, interesting things like how they die and how long people live for, um, and things like service service provision and post-diagnostic support. And so these things are driven by the things I've seen myself as a clinician. So, for example, many people with young onset dementia, they spend quite a long time trying to get a diagnosis. You don't expect to get dementia in your 50s or 60s. And so often these people spend five to six years seeing many specialties, specialty, specialties trying to work out what's wrong, whether they've got depression or anxiety, whether they've got this or that, whether they're, you know, putting it on or having work stress. And so to actually get a diagnosis is quite hard. So people don't expect it. You don't know how to look for it. You know, it gets sort of put down to it's just stress. So trying to work out an easier pathway, for example, to get that assessment and diagnosis is really important. That's some things I've been looking at um, in particular. And also what happens afterwards. Mm. So it's not just the diagnosis. It's you know, how do you manage people for quite a long period of time in terms of their work, family life, etc. That's fascinating. And it's such a needed area because I imagine it, it's so different compared to when you're older and get dementia versus younger. It's a whole different approach. Yep. Oh, sorry. So um, it's really storming in Sydney right now. So <laughs> my dogs might bark and you might hear some thunder maybe. I don't <laughs> <Gosh>. know. <laughs> crazy weather. <laughs> um, it's really crazy right now. So you spoke about your passion in clinical research. How did you get started when you, so you were a clinician in, you know, in psychiatry. Um, you said you got involved as a fellow, is that right? Yeah, that's right. As a, when I finished my training, correct. And how did you get started with that? Okay. So I guess um, it was pretty much when I started doing some work, the, the, the University of Melbourne, where I was a lecturer in the academic unit of psychiatry of old age, was doing a lot of research looking at Huntington's disease. And so as a registrar, as a medical student, I'd heard about it, but I'd never really seen any of Huntington's disease. Quite rare, obviously. Um, but we were doing a lot of research looking at people over, over time, so longitudinal studies, seeing people over a number of years and doing various tests and investigations. And so that 
was how I actually got started in working out what research was all about and what the value was. So whilst my PhD wasn't in Huntington's itself, it was looking at depression in older carers, it actually provided me with the skills to of inquiry and curiosity to try and work out, well, what, what question do I see? How can I answer it? How can I design a study in that particular area? And so I think I've been quite lucky that I've been able to have a lot of autonomy in my research. And so it's the same with my young onset dementia research. I've been able to fulfill my own path. And I guess it's probably because I've managed to get my own funding. So funding is very hard. And as you know, getting research from NHMRC or or whatever is actually really, really hard. At the time when I was doing research, obviously, you know, it was a bit easier. I was able to get PhD funding and postdoctoral funding, which means I'm not really beholden to anybody else. So what that means is that Often students can join projects which may fund them for a number of years, but it means that then they have to do a project in that particular area. And obviously they might be interested in the area, which is really good. But for me, being able to get my own funding means that I can actually do the kind of research I want to do and design it how I want to, obviously with the help of supervisors and, and mentors, etc. But the autonomy and curiosity and creativity I get in research is quite different to my clinical work. Which is, which is all public hospital driven by, you know, protocols, guidelines, bureaucracy, et cetera. Yeah, well, that's great that you managed to secure funding and because I know that's one of the biggest headaches of, of research and balance it out with the public hospital system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I finished my funding last September. So I had four years of funding for my postdoc. That's finished and the university has kindly given me like a tiny amount of EFT, which is not very much. I guess, just to do to supervise students and finish up stuff. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's incredibly hard. It is the bane of everyone's existence. But working as a psychiatrist means that I'm obviously very well remunerated. If my research funding ends, I'm not going to be destitute and on the street. So I'm very in a very fortunate <laughs> position that I can balance up my research, which is less paid than my, with my clinical work. So that's another really nice balance. And out of curiosity, um, what percentage research, what percentage clinical are you? I was, last year, I was 0.5, I was half-time, half-time. So it was pretty much um, two and a half days, two and a half days, which is really nice. But for me, I've never been, I've never worked more, I've never worked full-time as a clinician. So I've never had, I guess, that kind of pay. So a lot of people complain about research is less paid. So I can imagine that if you worked as a public psychiatrist, a public private psychiatrist, suddenly doing research would be a massive drop because I've always worked part time. Yeah, that's for true. me, it's always the same. So I'm probably not going to have a Ferrari nor a holiday house, but I am obviously comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, now, I, I just wanted more information on what a principal research fellow is. And just can you share more about that? I'll, I'll try to explain. So As I mentioned at the start, when I first started at the university, I started at what they call a lecturer level, which is what they call level A. And that's like the bottom of the rung in the university scheme. And then what you do is you can then apply if you've done particular metrics such as publications or grants or whatever. You think then go to level B, which is like a senior lecturer. And then then again, you can apply for a promotion and get a very small pay rise, for example. And then you move to level C, which is a senior research fellow. 
And then as a principal research fellow where I am today, it's a level D. So that's also an associate professor. Okay. And so that gives you a particular standing, which indicates that you've, for example, done a particular, you've gotten this many grants, you've got some recognition nationally and some international recognition, you've got funding, you've got students. So it's a bit of a, um, I guess, a sort of level of seniority as a principal research fellow or associate professor. And then, of course, above that is the professor, which is level E, where, again, it's, you know, much more recognition, um, a lot more leadership type roles. So it's that sort of ladder, Mm. I guess, which is, you know, quite different to clinical work where you become a GP and a psychiatrist or whatnot, and you stay like that. Yes, you get much more experience, but the the name is the same. Oh, thanks for explaining because it was very clear (laughs) and now I have a good idea. And it leads on to my (laughs) next question, which I don't know if it's a silly one, but what's the difference between a principal investigator and a clinical, like, of a research trial and the principal research fellow? Okay, so that, that's not a silly question at all. And there's so much different lingo and they're all probably very similar. So, for example, if you're a principal investigator, which also is sometimes called a chief investigator, that sometimes indicates you're like the person in charge or you're the person right on top. Um, and then underneath you or underneath this principal investigator will be other investigators who may be called associate investigators or AIs, for example. So these people may be doing other bits and pieces of the work, but as the top PI or the principal investigator, you're the one who's running the show and responsible for all the things getting done, for example, in a clinical trial. So you might have to attend various meetings which tell you about adverse events, how many people you're supposed to recruit, the protocol or protocol Mm -hmm. changes, and then the AIs might be there doing a bit more other stuff. So as the PI, you're kind of on top, And then you have the other levels, which might be associate investigators, research assistants, and other sort of clinic nurses, for example. So that's that kind of hierarchy. And then you have, again, which makes it complicated, that if you're applying for funding, often the funders ask you to nominate chief investigators. And they're almost very similar to principal investigators, but these are people where they are supposed to say, they're supposed to support you in your grant application. So if you're writing a dementia grant as the chief investigator CIA, that means you are the one who are who's responsible for the grant and writing it. And then you get a whole lot of other people who will be chief investigator B, C, D, etc., who you'll ask them to help out. But you're the one as CIA who's got that full responsibility of the funding application and also the running of the grant if you get it. So that's that. So it's confusing. There you go. Okay. <laughs> and the principal research research fellow is just the name I've got, for example. So okay. when I write that on my application, I'll say I'm an associate professor, but I could be a CIA. I could be applying as the top person. Right. Or I could be applying. Someone has asked me to be on their grant to help them out as, you know, an, as, an, as an associate investigator or say as, as chief investigator B or C, for example, rather than the top dog. Yeah, so you don't need to be um, a principal research fellow to be a principal investigator and vice versa kind of thing? No, not at all, not at all. It would depend on your qualifications and what things you have to help get that grant to look successful. 
Thanks for explaining that as well. <laughs> I know it's confusing, isn't it? It is. It's a lot of, and it's very different jargon to the the clinical world. So it's good to to get an idea of it. Totally. Um, and what's the typical workday uh, for you like as a principal research fellow? Yeah. So, for example, what I do. So even though I don't have a lot of research time, this at the moment I still spend a bit of time doing my research. So at the moment, it's about writing papers so there's been a couple of projects which I've been running and trying to complete so one of these projects was a really interesting music therapy and cognitive behavior therapy combined approach for people with young onset dementia and their carers so it was basically a six-week program where we talked about young onset dementia it was a group program by zoom and as well as learning about you know coping with dementia etc it combined um, music therapy. So they actually got to compose songs and make up songs and sing songs. So it was a really lovely project. And so at the moment, I'm trying to work on that particular paper to try and get that published in the hope that maybe I can write, um, apply for more funding to get that project to continue. So that's something which is what I'm doing at the moment. Um, I'm also trying to write up other papers, which is looking at you know, mortality and death in young ones of dementia. And then I've got a couple of students. So I spend a bit of time supervising them, trying to make sure they're on the right track, checking in, looking at my, looking at the other staff members. So it's a bit of a hodgepodge of things and often there's a lot going on. So you can feel like you're not getting anything done. So <laughs> you have to kind of multitask and prioritise things and then suddenly someone will say hey do you want to be on my grant help me write my grant is due you know tomorrow and then you spend your time writing up that so it's kind of um a little bit unpredictable and and a bit crazy at times but you know you kind of need to have an understanding family or (laughs) so if you have to only do things the next day it's kind of like oh okay late night so it's kind of got that a little bit of a buzz to it it's like oh you know I work really hard get a bit of momentum you know get a bit of ideas and energy that's kind of exciting but on the flip side, um, you can put a lot of work into things for, for not much um, result. So, for example, you put in a lot to write a paper, the paper doesn't get accepted or it gets rejected. Or you put, spend a lot of time writing a grant, which you think is amazing, but the funding opportunities are so small. So it's I guess it's hard to keep being motivated sometimes. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. that. that's what came to mind, that it sounds mm. like you need to be very mm. self-driven, self-motivated to, to keep going in this kind of research. Yeah, that's right. And I think also it's about, well, look, ultimately the goal is if, you know, I'm trying to improve the lives of, of families and, and individuals with dementia. So that also drives things as well. But it is, it is you, know, you know, a hard slog. It's different to your clinical work where often you can just turn off I know a lot of people can't, but you know my clinical work, I'd leave at five and, and that's it usually, unless I'm on call, but the research can impede into all aspects of your life if you wanted it to. Because it's very interesting, you know, you can spend a lot of time reading, writing and, and doing things, but, you know, that could be obviously to the detriment of your personal life and, and other things. Yeah, yeah, that's true, keeping the boundaries. Um, yeah. And what do you like most about your work in research? Gosh. A few things. I, I, I really love that I get to meet other people in the field. So I really enjoy collaborating and doing a few projects with other people who are like-minded. And I think I've got to meet a whole lot of really fantastic and interesting people who are in the areas. And I, I really love that. It's fantastic working with people who are like-minded, who are similarly motivated and excited about the work. And that's really rewarding. 
because I'm trying to work on sort of clinical translation and trying to make actual changes in the short term rather than say drug trials which take can take you know decades to come to fruition you know I'm trying to make you know changes in terms of sort of here and now service provision like how can I change services how can I use my research to make changes to government policy for example I do I guess I I get a bit of a buzz if I present my work I mean I think I'm really proud of some of the things I've done and some of my colleagues so I think that's you know I take great pride in saying hey look at this work we've done I think that's, you know, some of the things we do with my team is, is really, you know, amazing. So I think I really enjoy that. So that's probably just a few things. I mean, having students and trying to, you know, help the next generation is also really important, sort of the mentoring and sponsorship also. So, yeah, I really, I do love it. Like, you know, if I had infinite amounts of time and money, I would, you know, I can see why you could spend a lot of time being a full-time researcher. Not, not for me financially, but there's so much about it, which is, you know, just inspiring things you can do and make changes in a very different way to the clinical work. Um, yeah, yeah. Sounds like you like a lot of it. <laughs> I think, I think. look, I think everybody can be a clinical researcher. I think people think, well, at least in psychiatry, for example, people find that research is this extra step and it is a bit of a hurdle. Yeah, so yeah. To, to complete your training, you have to do what we call a scholarly project, which is a research project. And it's one of the last things people do. So it becomes a bit of a, a hurdle and um, people end up sort of disliking it because it becomes a bit of a drag. And so I think, but really, if you think about it in a way of how it can reflect and how it can improve your clinical practice, that's all clinical research. So one of my students, one of the sort of registrars is looking at driving and how is driving monitored and assessed. And that's really important in psychiatry. And so the work he's done, he you know, it's not it is actually research. It's actually really important. How can how can he make changes to try and assess driving better? That's a really important, you know, bit of work, which, you know, may not be considered as research, but it actually is really clinically relevant. Um, so my hope is that people will start looking at these little things as actually, this is really important. This is a small thing that can actually make a big change. Yeah, yeah. And, and who do you think would be suited for clinical research? So I think anyone can do it if you've got the interest. Um, but you do need someone to help guide you along. So I think that's really important. You need someone to help you, as I've been helped um, along the way, to really guide you and help you make choices, but also to put you forward so that you have opportunities as a, as a more junior person to actually step up because you can't, it's, you can't just do it on your own because it it's, it's, it's hard. So having other people to say, hey, can you do this talk for me? Hey, you know, would you like to help me write this chapter? these things will help me with this paper all those opportunities are really important and helpful to get the support to to start looking at research and learning how to be a researcher okay great so anyone can do it if you have the interest and more people should basically <laughs> yes yes I think so and um yeah and you just need someone who's there to help you I think that's also really important yeah. to have that support. Need the support. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, I ask this of everyone on the podcast, so I'm going to ask you this question too. What is balance to you? Balance. Oh, God. Gee. <laughs> <laughs> that, wasn't on the, that wasn't on the piece of paper. <laughs> what is balance? Oh, gosh. I, oh, that's, that's really tough. Um, I guess having a sense of, you know, being content and satisfied with with your lot so I think knowing that you've been able to fulfill you know the things you want to do and your opportunities I think whatever's happening in your life if you've got a sense that you're actually doing the best you can and making the most of what you've got I think that gives you 
balance amongst the chaos. Yeah, I like that balance amongst the chaos. Yeah, I think so. I think it's an important thing for everybody to have that opportunity to make the most of themselves and be better if they can. I think that helps. Now, we're nearing the end. Is there anything else you'd like to add that you think would benefit the listeners? I think if you are really interested in looking at research or clinical research, it's about trying to reach out to find someone who can help you. So there's lots of lots of big, important professors who may not have any time, but if you approach them, they can often put you in touch with someone who can actually guide you along the way. You don't need the professor. The professor's too far above. Having someone who is with you to help you step by step, I think will actually make the journey a lot more enjoyable and, and also learning. You'll, you'll learn a lot more. Psychiatry's been tricky with a lack of researchers in the more sort of my generation. There's a lot of professors who are, you know, in their 60s, but there's a bit of a 10-year gap. So that's a real missing part of psychiatry at the moment. So I think that's something which, you know, would be important for me and, you know, for us as a whole, as a college to try and foster. Otherwise, we're going to lose psychiatry research to other disciplines. If, if and we I'm not sure if we want that to happen. So if you're interested, get in touch, find someone who's going to help you. Yeah, definitely. Get a, get a helping hand. You need support. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And how can people find out more? You, you touched on that, but, you know, who do you think would you be willing to – I don't need to put this in, but would you be willing for anyone to reach out to you yeah. or – Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. Yep, for sure. They can email me. That's fine if they want to get any advice. That's not a problem, you know. Yeah, um, I feel very passionate about it. I, I, You know, I've had a lot of help. So, you know, you can't do it by yourself. You need people to come and help you. There's, there's way I should have done, I could have done things differently and maybe should have, but you know, things have worked out okay. <laughs> yeah, it looks like they have. Well, thank yeah. you so much. And thanks for being willing for people to reach out to you. So if people want to learn more, find, I guess, someone that's in the field that you're interested in and, and, and try get the support to move into that space. Yeah, definitely. I'll be very happy to to be contacted. Great, great. Well, thank you for coming onto the podcast. It's been so lovely to chat. Thank you. Thanks very much. That was heaps of fun. You've been listening to the Balance Medics Handover podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, I'd love for you to take a minute to rate and review this podcast and click the follow button. For more resources, check out the Balance Medics website. The link to this will be in the show notes below. See you next episode.